This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Now, Fight Back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio. Good afternoon and welcome. I am delighted to welcome Gil Penulosa, who announced his candidacy for mayor of Toronto last week. He is, at this moment, the most significant challenger to John Tory. He's an urbanist who is known, respected, and consulted around the world. He's the founder of 880 Cities, a nonprofit that advocates for public spaces accessible to all. And he's a major champion of parks in Bogota, where he is from. He led the design and construction of over 200 parks, including Simon Bolivar, a 113-hectare park in the heart of the city. He has a whole arsenal of ideas, including canceling the rebuild of the Gardner Expressway. Now, if you have questions, the numbers to call 416-360-0740, toll-free 1-866-740-4740. And Gil Penulosa joins me now. Welcome. Thanks for joining us. Thank you very much for having me. So why do you want to run for mayor? Because I think that over the last eight years, the city has become less affordable, less equitable, less sustainable. I think that the city is falling apart. Uh, in At the beginning of June, half of the water fountains were not even working. You go to the public washrooms and they are shut down, they're closed. You're going to take public transit and the escalators are broken. Uh, the garbages are over full. I think there are lots and lots of symptoms everywhere. And I think that I have more managerial capacity. I have an MBA. I've been managing companies in the pol- public sector, in the private sector. And I'm totally committed for the most vulnerable. I think that I want a Toronto for everyone. And if we ask the listeners, they will realize that Toronto is not for everyone, but it could be. Okay. you. We're talking to you on a day with breaking news that has everyone in a tizzy. It's speculation. But uh, the Toronto Star broke a story that the province is going to give Toronto and Ottawa uh, more power. Big city mayor power. Uh, the mayor, John Tory, has released a statement saying he's in favor. I know there's been talk about this for years. Right now, the mayor of the city is just one vote on council. Uh, do you think it would help get things done? I think that Toronto doesn't have a, lo- a lack of power. It has lack of ideas, lack of vision, lack of managerial capacity to get things done. The reality is that I don't know any any vote on any significant issue that the mayor has lost in the last eight years. Everything that he has wanted, he has won overwhelmingly. He has a group of councillors that vote over 90% with him on everything. So I think it's it's a poor excuse to say that it has been because of lack of power. And also, I think I don't find it appropriate 
that four years ago, the mayor met with the same premier and they changed the rules of the games within 100 days of the election. Now the two of them are meeting again and changing the rules within 100. Why not have done it 100 days ago? Or why not do it 100 days after the election? Are you, are you suggesting that, that John Tory had something to do with the reduction of those seats? Well, he clearly mentioned that he has spoken about this with Premier Ford. Uh, he also did, said it four years ago. Uh, so, yes, I, I, I do think, and I'm not saying if it's good or bad either idea. I'm just saying that are not ideas to come out within a hundred days of an election. Within a hundred days, we need to let citizens have total free uh, thought on why but, do they want to vote uh, on. Doug Ford, I mean, from when he was on council and his brother was the mayor, he's uh, had a, several bees in his bonnet about the how the city should be run. Uh, and in terms of the mayor, I think what he's trying to say is that, you know, he may have won all those votes, but he could get stuff done a lot faster. It takes forever to do anything. No, not really. Only if you don't have the capacity to do it. But Libby, the premier has been premier for over four years. If he had that idea from the time in council, why didn't he do it in those four years? He, ha he had majority in Ontario. He could have done it easily four years ago, three years ago, two years ago. He can do it three months from now. Why do it in the middle of, a, of an election? So I just think, but, and, and again, there is nothing that the current mayor wanted that he did he did not get. Everything that he wanted was approved. It's not lack of power, it's lack of ideas, lack of vision of the Toronto that we want. I want a Toronto for everyone. I want a Toronto that is affordable, that is equitable. I want a Toronto where all people can be healthier and happier. And that's not the Toronto that we have today. I want to pick up on the city falling apart it, it used to be a clean city. We seem to have forgotten the basics. Uh, and one of the things that I think about with that is, is city staff. I mean, throughout the pandemic, they were all paid full salary and presumably they were working, but that didn't happen. We have very powerful unions at the city. I mean, how would you get those things to work? Yeah. I want to also clarify that the city was falling apart also two years ago. So it's not in the last two years during the pandemic. But if, if the listeners think about whether two years ago, whether they were better off than six years before or whether today are, they are, they are better off than eight years ago. No. So it's not an issue of the pandemic. And I totally agree with you. The streets are, are dirtier. The parks are dirtier. Uh, the, the benches are broken and they are not repaired. I think that we have, the overwhelming majority of the people working for the city are good. The overwhelming majority started to work in the public sector because they wanted to create a better city. But little by little, they lose that. So I think we need a mayor that will reignite that flame of enthusiasm, of commitment, of how to create a better city for us, our families, our friends, our neighbors. And that is not happening. So I think the big problem is at the top level of staff, some of the general managers and elected officials. So we need not only a new mayor, but hopefully at least half of council will be new. There's magnificent people in Toronto, so we can elect them. Also, there's lots of really good people running for council. But I totally agree with you that we have the staff in general is well paid, has very good benefits. Uh, 
and uh, and we are not getting things done. I, I think uh, much of it is for lack of leadership and lack of vision. We need to engage them. Well, uh, one of the things a strong mayor would do would give him the power to appoint more of those people. I mean, wouldn't that be easier than the way it's done now? No, the top people in the city or a well-made majority are either appointed by the mayor or goes through the executive committee. City council has not rejected one single appointment of John Tory. Not one. This is an excuse. He's making a bubble out of nothing. Every person that he appointed. And by the way, Libby, half of the citizens living in Toronto are visible minorities. But when you look, yesterday they appointed an interim city manager. White, the, head, the people that have been were appointed at the top levels, planning, parks, transportation, city management, or all white. The, couldn't they have found one visible minority? Half of us were born in another country, immigrants. We, I think that we need to integrate the immigrants to our cities, and we are not integrating. You, I think, I, I think, think the so? immigrant issue is very, very important in Toronto. I mean, I would think that with a lot of immigrant communities, uh, you know, it takes a little bit of time. But when I think about some of the big immigrant populations here, um, you know, you look at people who are uh, who have come from Hong Kong, people who've come from India. Uh, so many of them are very successful. They're politically active and uh, have power. I mean, yeah, I think many are fantastic. But it's not reflected at the top level of the city in the senior positions. Why? By the way, the immigrants, we leave, we, we have left our countries and we left everything, our family, our country, because we had a dream of Canada. We had a dream of Toronto. And for most immigrants, that dream is not being fulfilled. Toronto is nurses, but we have nurses doing hamburgers. Toronto is teachers, but we have teachers cleaning buildings. We need engineers and so on. We some some of the issues are municipal, yeah. some are provincial, some are federal. But on a city where over half of the people are immigrants, the mayor has to lead the issue because this is bad for everybody. It's bad for the countries of origin because they are losing their best people. It's bad for the immigrants because they are unhappy, and it's bad for Toronto because we have a huge asset, magnificent people that are unhappy because they are not doing the things that they could be doing, mostly for red tape. Well, uh, yeah, but not municipal red tape. Provincial, all of it. We no, have all you, of it. We have municipal. We have provincial. We have federal. But a mayor, we 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 kick the thing to everybody. The, the mayor says, "Oh, it's the province." The premier says, "It's the federal." The federal says yeah. something. No, I as mayor will lead, will lead and will help the immigrants with issues at the city, but also in the province. We need to remember that in the province, one out of four people live in Toronto. We know we need to realize that almost half of the income that the Ontario gets, they get it from Toronto. We we also have to change that mindset because sometimes we say, oh, Toronto is a creature of the province. No, maybe the province is a creature of Toronto. I couldn't agree with you more. For for example, when, when the premier says that Eglinton West, he wants to put it underground. And it's going to cost $2.4 billion. The difference between same train, same stops, same speed, everything was designed above ground because Eglinton West is very, very wide. Well, to put it underground, it costs $2.6 billion. And the current administration, they talked about it at council and the mayor and his group voted against even sending a letter to the premier saying that Toronto preferred other options. Not even a letter. No. 
I, as a mayor, I want to work with the premier. I want to work with the prime minister. But on issues like this, I want to advocate because one out of four of those 2.4 billion are coming from taxpayers of Toronto's. And it's such a waste of money. We say, oh, we don't have money to do the Lakeshore East LRT. Well, it's a fraction of the money that we are wasting on the Eglinton West. So, so we, we, I mean, Libby, past pandemic and with climate change, we need to live differently. We need to be much more efficient on how we invest resources. We need to be more, much more flexible. We cannot throw away 2.4 billion just because the premier thinks it's cute to have the same train, the same speed. The same. I mean, why don't we as citizens, if you could take public transit on Eglinton West, above ground or below, above ground, watching the trees and the people and the stores and the sun and the clouds, or below ground, all black. Would you rather go above ground or below? I think that nine out of 10 would prefer to go above ground, and maybe nine out of 10 rats would prefer to go underground because the rodents like the darkness. Subway, subways was actually a, a very uh, successful slogan. Um, if you uh, if you don't rebuild the Gardner Expressway, what will what will happen there? What about people who are driving? Well, I want citizens listening to think, what would happen if the mayor went to your door and knock on the door and say, can you give me $600? And you say, oh, why? Oh, because I want to save 2% of the people three minutes a day. Oh, I see your spouse. Oh, I need another 600 from your spouse. Oh, and, and there's a little boy, another 600. This is $1,800 of taxes of every household, $600 per every man, woman, and child. So let's think about this. The 10-year budget, the 10-year budget that all of us Torontonians have to do transportation, half of it is going into the, into the gardener. It doesn't make any sense. We are not solving anything. We are just saving well, three minutes to 2%. I am not against cars. I, I don't have a car, but when I need car, a car, I have a car share and I use car. I'm, I'm not against cars, but I do think that there is much better ways to invest those $600 than saving two, three minutes to 2% of the commuters. But, but congestion is terrible and our public transit system is not in a state where uh, everybody can just take public transit. If you have to get somewhere... Uh, and be on time. So what would you do to alleviate the congestion for people who are driving? Yeah, the Gardiner East is not going to alleviate the congestion to people. And of course, we do need, for example, the last eight years have failed Scarborough. They have been talk, talk, talk about public transit, about new ways in Scarborough, and there is nothing, nothing. So we do need to see things. For example, with the cars, I think we need to have flexible work hours. If people that don't need for whatever reason to be at certain time, if people could work between 10 and 3, everybody. If you are a morning person, you can arrive at 7 a.m. and leave at 3. If you are not a morning person, you can arrive at 3 and leave at 7. All of a sudden, instead of having a, a, a peak hour of two, one or two hours, now we have ex spread over four or five hours, so then we don't have as much congestion. But, it, but that's not up to you. Well, for mayor. city workers, it is. Oh, for but, city they, workers. But, but then I would lead with the private sector. We need to work with the private sector. We need to work with our universities. For example, something like the gardener. 
we should have called U of T, York University, and uh, now the, the, the Metropolitan University and said, please, we need a quick study. We need in four months, evaluate the gardeners and tell us what is the best option. By the way, when the city staff proposed, all of them proposed to do a, a boulevard. When Toronto Waterfront proposed, everybody said the, the boulevard. Only when the mayor came back with an idea, oh, why don't we do a hybrid and let's move the elevator. To have done the boulevard was only 500 million. To move the garden and rebuild it is almost 2 billion. It, it is totally crazy. And then we say, oh, we don't have money to have uh, winterized parks. We don't have money for washrooms. We don't have money to improve public transit. Of course, we don't have if we're spending half of the budget of 10 year budget in one small project that is going to improve. So I think we, we need, of course, we also need to improve public transit. I think that we could get buses and streetcars to go 30% faster with 30% more people if we only give them some priority during peak hours in some areas, not the whole line, only where there is traffic congestion. And then we need to provide incentives for people. People will not take public transit. If it's not faster, if it's not more comfortable, and if it's not affordable. So it's not about campaigns and talking to people. But we, if, if we have a city that is better to walk and ride bicycles and use public transit, it's also going to be better to use cars. Uh, Gil, I'm looking at the clock. We're out of time. There are a lot of topics we haven't even got to, like Vision Zero. Uh, so we'll have to have you uh, come back and talk some more, hopefully soon. Before we go, though, I want to know about your campaign. Have you raised money? Uh, yes, well, our website is guildformayor.ca. We're getting lots of volunteers and uh, we are getting lots of people giving money. If you give a hundred dollars, the city gives you back 75. So your cost is only 25. And I would love to come back to talk about vision zero because the city has been talking vision zero, but doing zero vision. <laughs> I want, I can make, I can make streets safe. We can do it. And that is a top priority to me. A person driving in Toronto hits a person walking every three and a half hours. That's unacceptable. Cities like Oslo, last year they had zero pedestrian deaths, zero cyclists. Why? Because they did implement Vision Zero. But in Toronto, we have done almost nothing about making the city safer to walk. And everybody walks. Every single tree begins and ends by walking. We walk to the car, we walk to public transit, we walk to places. So Vision Zero, I'm totally committed to Vision Zero, to the 15-minute city, but with actions, not with talking. It's about having a vision, but having action, action, action. Okay, Gil, we'll have to have you back real soon. And that is something I do want to pick up on because you're right. We've been talking about it till we're blue in the face and nothing much has happened. And also we, we can talk an, at another time about older adults because that's one third of our lives, one third. And that is fascinating because as older adults, we should be able to live older, healthier and happier. So happy to come and talk about that because I've done lots of works around the world, lots in the U.S. with AARP on older. And here with CARP. Exactly with CARP. I love CARP. I'm a member. I've been a member of CARP for many years and I've been doing talks with CARP. And I, and I think I hope everybody becomes member of CARP because we need to strengthen it and tell your friends to become members. Okay. That's how I, I've been getting savings for being a CARP member on things that I purchase. Okay. Excellent. <laughs> Advocacy for CARP. Thank you so much, Gil Penalosa. We'll have you back real soon. And uh, we are going to be taking a short break. And we'll be picking up on parts of this conversation with a couple of city councillors. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. 
Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight Back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio. Still with municipal issues, Toronto City Council is meeting for the last time before the October election, which has a lot of people wondering why they want to be talking about putting cats on leashes. But before we get to that, I want to pick up on that report about giving strong mayor powers to Toronto and Ottawa. It is a bit of a bombshell for councillors who fear it will diminish their power. And as we heard in Steve's news, John Tory likes the idea because he believes it would help him speed up getting things done. Uh, we are going to take some calls, so please hold on. The number's also 416-360-0740, toll-free 1-866-740-4740. And now let's go to Councillor Mike Layton, Ward 11, University Rosedale, and Councillor James Pasternak, Ward 6, York Centre. Thanks for joining us. I appreciate it. Hello. Thanks very much, Libby. Oh, great to be here, Libby. Thank oh, you. Okay, so let us begin with Mike. Uh, strong mayor powers. Would it help get things done? Well, I think it's it's first we got to establish this isn't about Tory. It's not about left and right. It's about whether or not or, or what happens when these powers fall into the wrong hands. And you that, wouldn't have anyone in mind there, would you? Well, I, 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 I wouldn't exactly, but you don't have to go back so far in recent memory uh, to, to look at examples of when I think a lot of people would agree they wouldn't want a strong mayor in power of the city. And if you look at, at, at Mayor Tory's record over the last two terms, it's not like he's struggling getting his agenda passed. Uh, I support some of that agenda. I have supported uh, a good portion of that agenda, given the council agrees on about 95 percent of everything unanimously when we go to city council. Um, but it, it's about that other 5% and what damage that a veto power could do put in the wrong hands. So I think we've got to strip out our trust for uh, Mayor Tory in this instance and say, what happens if, if, if the uh, tables are reversed? You know, a mayor can win with under 30% of the vote in the city of Toronto because of the way the system works. And, and that's important to remember that we could have a mayor that doesn't, certainly doesn't represent the majority, but have an enormous amount of power over what decisions are made on the city. I don't think it'll speed things up because I think the There'll still be a significant amount of debate that our communities will want to have and that we will want to see the information that's coming forward uh, as uh, as as we determine how we're going to implement some of the policies. And let's just it's not just about the veto power. It's also about this notion of being able to hire and fire senior staff. What if that mayor doesn't like the answer that they've received from a senior staff person? Well, they uh, just don't like the, the answer from the experts. Those senior staff are then going to be worried for their jobs if all of a sudden they're at the whim of the mayor uh, whether or not they're going to work there the next week. Well, um, okay. Um, Let's move along to Councillor Pasternak. Now, first of all, we don't know the shape of this particular strong mayor powers, whether it will have a veto. And, you know, I was just talking with Gil Penulosa, who is uh, running for mayor, and uh, we've been talking about how the city seems to be falling apart, and I know you're talking about city staff, but, you know, a lot of the very basic, basic things in this city are not getting done. 
Counselor Pasternak. Yeah, well, um, you know, a, a lot of what we we don't know what the shape of these new powers will be, and I think Counselor Layton touched on it. He's mentioned the veto a few times, but in many jurisdictions in the United States where you have a strong veto, you also have a, a an override of the veto by council if they can uh, hit sort of a two thirds a two thirds majority. Uh, I would simply say that the the, um, the mayor in this city has enormous powers already. I mean, many of the things they're talking about, about winning votes on the council floor, uh, appointments to standing committees, um, the uh, serving at the pleasure of the mayor for senior staff, he already has all those powers, and I'm not sure what more you could add to it. And I would also say uh, that when the mayor wants to win a vote, they usually can. There's enough support here uh, for the mayor to, mayor to carry his agenda. He loses very rarely. And I'm really not sure what added powers uh, would would bring him. Uh, at the same time, um, I, I would agree that, you know, our current mayor is extremely uh, responsible uh, leader. And that's that's why uh, that's why he's doing so well uh, through very difficult times of the city. It is true that you might have someone in power in the future who would abuse those powers. Okay, so let's any- let's 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 be clear. Uh, Doug Ford first had this idea when he wrote a book because his brother Rob Ford could not get certain things done. And when you're talking about oh, let's say if somebody somebody not so hot got into power, uh, you're thinking of Rob Ford. And of course, Rob Ford was elected. Yeah, no, I'm not. I'm not thinking of, of Rob. I'm thinking of, uh, of of a future mayor who 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 may take the powers uh, too far. But as I said, council can still have an override of a veto uh, if it's in the legislation. And uh, there also could be a sunset clause with the legislation. In other words, it might have to be renewed every three or four years or every term. So it's something that might be tried for a term, but can be always can be rescinded by either order in council or or in the provincial legislature. So we have to see we have to see what this could look like. We have to see make sure that councillors still have have their say and have a strong voice because we're right at the grassroots and we bring we bring the voice and the concerns of our local constituents right onto the council floor. So so if democracy is going to be sustained, that voice still must be heard. Uh, I'm just looking, the star is reporting that strong mayors could be, uh, could have, there could be an override by two thirds of council. Mike Layton, is that enough of a check and balance? And two thirds of council is, 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 or two thirds is now the bar for uh, making decisions. That's an enormous amount of, uh, to overcome, uh, if you, when, when you have a, a, a situation with the mayor, uh, making decisions for a city of, uh, many millions of people that wouldn't be represented. Like, look at some of the stats. In 2010, uh, in, in the ward I represent, Ward 19, I got twice as many votes as, as, as uh, the then mayor uh, Ford. In 2014, I got twice as many votes in the ward than Mayor Tory did. In 2018, I got 5,000 votes more than Tory did, and I represented the ward he lives in. I got 22,000 votes, and he got 17,000. I just don't think we can ignore the will of all of those people in core debates. The most core debate being the budget. 
And if that, if we can't have a debate about the budget that involves all of our voices, and as, as, as Councillor Pasternak said, all of the different perspectives, and there's many different perspectives. We all come from different communities that, that want us to bring forward different, uh, different questions and different solutions. We all deserve, and they, they all deserve to have a voice in that, in that debate. And if we're coming into a situation where someone that gets well under 50% of the vote, in some cases they could be getting under 30%, if, if they have all the power, the ultimate power that can only be questioned with two thirds, well, you know, there's a huge democratic deficit there in a situation where you have. Well, at every level here, actually. Seriously, at every level of the way our system is set up. Uh, I'm going to take a call from Patricia. She's been waiting uh, very patiently, even though I think she wants to respond more to our previous segment, but it's all about the city. Uh, Patricia, you're on the air. Go ahead. Um, the gentleman that you had on, Gil, wow. I was just blown away with this guy. Never heard of him, but he will get my vote. He is right. The city is falling apart. The subways are full of the homeless. I was walking home last night through the subway at the center. Four people smoking up the crack in the subway. And the, the homeless are taking over the subway. That's why we have all these delays. They have an area underground. They found a subway um that's been shut down, and that's where they're all living. And that's why we've had delays on our trains. Okay, Patricia, thanks for that. So, if I could just say, yeah. like, we are struggling to, to meet the needs of our city. And if the province focused more on the requests we've made of them so we can fix some of these issues, from our, our, our homelessness crisis to our affordable and supportive housing crisis to our transit system and funding new lines and expansion and, and the operational funding of public transit, as well as our climate initiatives, if the province focused more on actually responding to requests that a majority of city councillors have made of them rather than on something that nobody has asked for, then maybe we could address some of these uh, some of these challenges. Uh, our well, previous, just a minute, our previous guest, Gil Penalosa, was saying that's that's one of the things that he sees happening here. Every level of government kind of points the finger at the other, and and things don't get fixed. Well, I would I have to jump in here. Uh, and historically, um, federalism uh, has not helped municipalities. The money flowed from the federal government to the provinces, and the provinces historically decided uh, what to do with it. That wasn't the sort of the case in the United States where, uh, it, you know, in the post-World War period, Washington really understood what urban centers were. Now, that's changing. And one of the reasons it's changing is because of this mayor, Mayor Tory. He has been able to work with both levels of government, despite the fact that they're, you know, they're different parties, work with both the premier and the prime minister. They, they work sure. well together too. <laughs> they do work too well. Together. It's a it's a weird and, bromance. And we're trying yeah, we're trying to work uh, move away from this adversarial old style federalist approach. And and the prime minister and the premier understands that 80% of Canadians live in cities. Look, we're facing major challenges at, at the city. We just went through the worst pandemic in 100 years. But, you know, Toronto is a very resilient city. It has enormous capacity to, to recover from both from both the, um, the pandemic and any kind of economic downturn. And with the private sector thriving and, and city government supporting it along the way, I think our recovery will be robust. And I think we'll turn things around. 
I mean, look, this Jill who, Gill who you had on the line, of course, he's running against the mayor. He's going to be Mr. Negative. He's just going to, he's going to, he's not going to focus on the great things that are happening in this city. He doesn't represent really the, the, the true, the, the true, uh, accuracy of, of what's really the positive stuff that's happening in the city. Okay. So we have a lot on our plate. Uh, Answer me this. Uh, why is city council in its last meeting before the election talking about leashing cats? Michael. Well, you know, I, I, I didn't see this coming. Um, certainly there was a, a proposal by staff that didn't quite go in this direction. Uh, but based on the feedback that the committee received, uh, they've, they've taken these steps to talk about no roaming, uh, uh bylaws, which is what people are talking about with the leashes. Uh, listen. It's something that's done in a lot of other cities across Canada, a lot of other major cities, Vancouver, Calgary, Edmonton, Victoria. Um, whether I believe we should ex- explore it personally, partly because of, of two main reasons, in, in my opinion. One is it's healthier for cats. Um, there's lots of uh, documentation to say that, uh, that, that the deaths of cats are typically the result of getting outside and uh, contracting diseases or getting hit by vehicles. And also it's good for the environment. You know, I, I, cats kill... Uh, something to the tune of 42 million birds in Canada. Uh, th- there there, there are uh, disputes to those things. And what about the quality of life of cats? But really, is this is this a priority at this time, Councillor Pat? If the quality of life is equated to length of life, then uh, then the length of life is, is, uh, is, is longer if cats remain indoors. That's that's what the, the data suggests. Right. And I quoted an, an incorrect number. It's it's 100 to 350 million birds per year are killed by cats. And that's the, the top, the top uh, thing that kills birds in Canada. Well, there th- yeah. those numbers are disputed. But Councillor Pasternak is really this is what you should be focusing on? that uh, we're, we're focused on on cats uh, th- this week, and that is really not a reflection of, of what we're working on this week. We have 463 items uh, on the agenda this week. We're going to be meeting probably for at least four days, probably maybe even into next week. Cats is one of 463 items. Unfortunately, the media has has focused on that. We're doing great stuff in our parks, uh, in our affordable housing, in protecting communities, in Toronto water, in road construction, in pedestrian safety. There's dozens of items, hundreds of items that are making the city better. Cats is is a footnote at best. Yeah, it, Libby, uh, James is 100% correct about that. We're, we have approved more than 25,000 units in the city of housing in this meeting alone. Uh, and all of the other issues that he's he's brought up are are more of a focus. It just, they just seem to be ones that we can all agree on quick quickly. Okay. Okay. Uh, we're uh, just about out of time. So what would you like to leave us with? Uh, 20 seconds each, starting with Councillor Pasternak. I, I would simply say that, you know, I, I was born and raised in Toronto. It was a job, a dream job to become a city councillor. And all the councillors, regardless of their political stripe work, long, long hours every day to make the city stronger and better and to serve the, the local constituents. And we want to keep that. We want to rem- remain the voice of our local constituents and advocate them uh, at City Hall and make for, for a better city. Mike Layton? 
Uh, yeah, look, James just made a really great point. Uh, you know, I think people want their voices heard at City Hall. We can disagree with one another, but d- debate can be a healthy thing. Uh, people want to ensure that we're getting the best outcomes, and that means I, I think a multitude of voices in- engaged in the decision making uh, is actually a really positive thing for the city. Okay. Um, thank you so much, Councillor Mike Layton and Councillor James Pasternak. You're very thank welcome. You. All the best. Okay. Yeah, All Mike. the best See to you. See you later, Mike. Yeah, thanks, Libby. We're taking another break, and when we come back, how to cope with extreme heat. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight Back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. It's another day of extreme heat with a heat warning in effect. It's not as bad as the situation in London and other European cities where temperatures are in the 40s, but we are facing more and more extreme weather, which can be a danger to health. So how and why is this happening and how do we protect ourselves and our loved ones. The numbers to call 416-360-0740, toll-free 1-866-740-4740. And now let's go to Dr. Samantha Green, a family physician at St. Michael's Hospital and assistant professor at the University of Toronto, and Dr. Blair Feltmate, professor and head of the Intact Center on Climate Adaptation at the University of Waterloo. Thanks for joining us. Welcome. Thank you for having us. So let's begin with Dr. Green. Uh, Who is most at risk uh, in this weather? I mean, the elderly, uh, small children, pregnant women, and anyone with a chronic medical condition uh, is most at risk of heat-related illness, including heat exhaustion and the more serious and potentially deadly heat stroke. Uh, And people with chronic conditions uh, can also see worsening of those conditions. So lung disease, heart disease, kidney disease, and mental illness can all be exacerbated uh, by the heat. Uh, and I would also add that, um, you know, people living in poverty, people in racialized communities, uh, people with access to resources such as air conditioning are, of course, most vulnerable and most at risk um, in the heat. Uh, before we move along to Dr. Feltmate, uh, when you're talking about heat exhaustion and heat stroke, what are the signs? I, I think sometimes people don't even know they're in danger. Yeah, I mean, people who are feeling the heat, who are feeling maybe just some uh, sensations of nausea, headache, uh, just feeling a little bit unwell, that, that can be a sign of heat exhaustion, and, and that means you need to cool down fast. Uh, and so... You know, getting into an air-conditioned space, if that's possible, getting into the shade if you're in the sun, um, getting into a wet environment, so hopping in the shower, even submerging your your feet in cool water, that can help. Uh, Because the signs of heat stroke, I mean, it's kind of getting to be too late. So people who are experiencing heat stroke are often confused um, and and not really understanding what's going on. So if, if you are with someone who seems confused, who seems hot, uh, that means you need to cool them down right away. Uh, whatever you can do to cool them down, submerge them in ice water and, and call 911. Dr. Feltmate, uh, so far, I guess uh, we're lucky in that we're not seeing the extremes that they're experiencing in Europe. 
that's correct. But the uh, nonetheless, you know, heat is on the rise across uh, multiple uh, Canadian cities. And we've we've seen what things look like when when things go bad in Canada previously. For example, in 2021, we had 619 people die prematurely due to extreme heat in B.C. And then again in 2018, 86 people uh, 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 2008. In 2018, 86 people died uh, prematurely in Quebec due to extreme heat. And, um, and we do know through modeling that we are going to experience more extreme heat going forward. Um, for example, right now in Toronto, uh, we typically experience about uh, 12 to 14 days per summer where the temperature exceeds 30 degrees Celsius. In about 30 years from now, migrating upwards, uh, on around 2050, 2060, we will see about 55 days per summer where the temperature exceeds 30 degrees Celsius. And right now, our maximum daily temperature tends to top out at around 36, 37 degrees Celsius. We're probably pretty close to that limit today. But by 2050, that, uh, that uh, maximum daily temperature will increase by about 3 to 5 degrees Celsius, up to 39 to 41 uh, degrees Celsius. So uh, the heat is coming for sure. Dr. Green, uh, we had some disturbing information. I mean, all of the nursing homes were supposed to have air conditioning in place, but a lot of them don't, and they're blaming supply chain or, or whatnot. What about people who are in congregate living centers and they don't have the proper air conditioning? I mean, that's unacceptable. I think access to... You know, livable temperatures should be a human right. Uh, currently in Ontario, we do have regulations about um, minimum temperatures during the winter, but we, we need to set uh, a new bar for maximum temperatures in the summer so that landlords are held responsible in some of these uh, settings. And, and like you said, uh, long-term care facilities, uh, right now 40% don't have air conditioning. And, and that's a risk, of course, for the residents who are often elderly and have chronic conditions, but it's also a risk for the workers who are, you know, often in PPE, so uh, like heavily dressed and and doing a lot of heavy lifting, a lot of hard work. So so they're also at risk of, of heat-related illness due to the work that they're doing. Okay. I was about to take a call from a mechanic. He's gone. People be patient. I will uh, get to your calls. <clears throat> Excuse me. Uh, Dr. Green, I gather that there are some medications that interfere with your body's ability to regulate temperature on its own. Yes. Yeah, so people who are taking blood pressure pills, antidepressants, uh, antipsychotics, and uh, allergy medications, uh, all of those medications can interfere with the body's heat regulatory capacity. Uh, and so definitely think about speaking with your doctor about those medications and 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 pay more attention to to protecting yourself from the heat. Uh, drink water even when you're not feeling thirsty and make sure you have a plan and, and can access a cool space during a heat, heat wave like today. Are you referring to over-the-counter allergy medications that a lot of people take without, you know, thinking much about it? Yes, exactly. So you, like uh, reactant or whatnot? Yes. So what exactly will it do to uh, prevent them from... Regulating. Well, all those medications that I listed can interfere in various ways that the body keeps cool. So uh, the sweat response, the response that our body has to increase our heart rate to, to help uh, get hot 
uh, the, the heat to the surface of our body. Uh, and so all of those medications can interfere with that. Dr. Feltmate, uh, do you expect that this year we'll have more of these extreme heat events than we did, say, last year? Uh, it's hard to say on a year-to-year basis, but for sure there there will be uh, an upward migration in extreme heat uh, uh, realized in the country, in major cities across the country uh, going forward. As a general rule of thumb, over the next 30, 35 years, uh, the number of hot days within cities will increase for major cities across Canada by about two to three and maybe as much as uh, many as four times as many hot days over 30 degrees Celsius. And the average temperature increase will be up around three, three to five degrees Celsius warmer going forward for sure. And this is, this is driven by irreversible climate change, period. Climate change is here to stay. We cannot stop it. We can slow it down, but we can't stop it. So we need to prepare rapidly by way of adaptation for not just, by the way, extreme heat. We're experiencing more flooding in the country. That's very, very uh, financially costly. We're realizing more wildfires in the country. And then we're seeing the manifestation of extreme heat, wildfires, and flooding in countries all over the world now, driven by climate change. Okay, let's take a call from Frank in Concord. Hello, Frank. Hi, Libby. How you doing? Fine. How are you? Go ahead. Yes, I just wanted to mention, you know, I'm a mechanic, like 45 years. And uh, back in my early days, we had a problem with the uh, engines producing too much uh, carbon monoxide because they were inefficient. Now, all the internal combustion engines are so efficient that they produce more carbon dioxide while we breathe out. And the animals uh, creates that greenhouse effect. And now we, uh, we, we fix one problem for the respiratory with the carbon monoxide, and now we created another one. Okay. Uh, is there anything you want to say about uh, working in the heat? Okay. Thanks for your call. Uh, what do you say, Dr. Green, to people who are working outside in the heat? Should there be a maximum cutoff for that for construction workers? Uh, yeah, I think we do need to be more cognizant of that. Uh, and in particular for workers who may be, you know, working in the gig economy or who have, uh, you know, less, less job security. Uh, I think we need to pay more attention to heat-related risk, uh, certainly. Okay. Well, if they're working in the gig economy, presumably they're working indoors. Uh, No, like people who are doing delivery with Uber Eats, for example, who may really not have a choice about, uh, you know, whether they work or not because they need to put food on the table. Uh, Yeah, they may be working outdoors in this extreme heat. Mm -hmm. Do you have any special advice for people who are on a bicycle? I mean, I think just pay attention to how you're feeling and uh, make sure that you do take a break and, and cool off uh, throughout the day, drink lots of water, even if you're not feeling thirsty. Um, but, but really like, I think this is something we need to tackle as a society and, and, and uh, think about ways that we can regulate, uh, you know, act, people who are working in the heat. Mm-hmm. Uh, Dr. Feltmate, uh, what should we be doing? You're saying that we can't, stop this, but we have to adapt. What else should we be doing to adapt? Well, within cities, there, there, there are a number of things we can do. 
Um, and as uh, Dr. Green was mentioning opening in her opening remarks, we need to uh, put systems in place to protect people that are particularly at risk due to, to extreme heat. Uh, for example, with the, the, uh, the heat event in British Columbia last year, we, we saw very readily that it was a, a particularly vulnerable population where the elderly living alone, quite often someone living in the back of a rooming house uh, uh, somewhere, um, we need to have people, uh, we need to map out where are these people. We need to have people checking on them during heat waves and making sure that they're, you know, checking in once or twice a day. Are they hydrated? Uh, do they need, uh, uh, do they have a fan? Do they have a, access to air conditioning? Do they need a trip to a, a cooling shelter of their harm's way? Uh, another group is the, for the homeless. We can have behavioral adaptation in, in the sense that we can have roving, roaming teams within cities checking on the homeless on a regular basis during the heat waves to see, are they hydrated? Do they know where the cooling shelters are? Do they need a trip to the cooling shelter? So that's behavioral adaptation. And then what we need to do is actually put measures in place by way of infrastructure to lessen the impacts of uh, extreme heat within cities. We need more tree canopy within cities. We need to restore and retrain, retain tree canopy. Uh, to provide shade and respite for people that has obvious benefits. We need to even do things within cities like um, uh, uh, deploy cool roofs. And by that, what I mean is that if you've flown into any large city, such as Toronto, um, and you look down, you'll see that the factories, the shopping malls, the apartment buildings almost universally have black, dark tar surfaces. Um, when sunlight hits that dark surface, only about 20% of that energy reflects back into the space, and the rest of the energy uh, stays in the system, contributing to heating. But literally, if we did something as simple, painting those roofs white, when sunlight hits that bright white surface, about 80% of the energy reflects back into the space, into, into space, less energy stays in the system, and we get relative cooling as compared to if we didn't make such an effort. Um, we need to make sure that for in apartment buildings, by the way, particularly older apartment buildings, that we have backup, adequate backup electricity supply uh, to run fans and air conditioning in the event that there was be an electricity outage. Um, the uh, if 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 we had a heat wave combined with uh, an elongated electricity outage, whereby people could find themselves on the 20th floor in an apartment building somewhere with with um, uh, um, no fans, no air conditioning, and water won't flow uh, out of taps above the sixth floor in these buildings. <laughs> in the absence of elect backup electricity supply, these people could be in real trouble. And I also think um, Dr. Green hit the nail right on the head uh, perfectly when she talked about access to air conditioning as, as a fundamental human right. I think we really have to consider this. The same way that we think that, you know, it, we, we would... It's a it's a right for people to have warmth and comfort during the winter. I think they need access to coolness uh, during the summer. And it's not just comfort. It actually can be a life and death issue. Okay. Uh, Dr. Green, I'm going to give the last word to you. Now, some of the things that Dr. Feltwaite was talking about, we have to a certain extent. Uh, where do you see the deficits? Uh, yeah, I mean, I agree with everything that Dr. Feldman said. And I would just add that, uh, like, Adding more green space in urban centers is is a great way to cool, um, you know, neighborhoods that often are poor neighborhoods, racialized neighborhoods that don't have adequate green space. And those neighborhoods are up to 15 degrees hotter 
uh, on a hot day like today compared with surrounding neighborhoods that do have adequate green space. So by planting more trees, um, takes a while for them to grow in the neighborhood, but we're also actually directly sinking carbon into the ground. Uh, so additional co-benefits to mitigate this crisis. Uh, and we're also providing access to nature, uh, which we know is good for people's health and well-being. So, uh, so that's one really important intervention. And I'll just, one final thought is, uh, I also think we need to be intervening, um, with, with strategies that, that both help us adapt and can can help us mitigate this crisis, so reduce emissions. So that would be um, really retrofitting buildings to use more efficient air conditioning devices and uh, heat pumps, which can heat in the winter and cool in the summer, uh, and, and implementing other ways, other strategies to both reduce emissions and help us adapt. Okay. Thank you so much, Dr. Samantha Green and Dr. Blair Feltmate. Appreciate your time. Everybody stay cool. And that is all the time we have for today. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads. Idea City on the air and The Garden Show.